0: No, I'm curious how did you first meet Paramita Vora? You know I
1: encountered her I encountered her about 10 years ago uh, and we sort of happened to connect over Twitter over something I I was reading one of her columns and then I sort of like gushed eloquently about it I mean I say eloquently gushed yeah. and uh, and she responded you know and uh, then I sort of invited her for a show and we've been sort of on and off chatting ever since and she has provided like I think she's one of those people that has this incredibly vast vocabulary To describe emotions. Right? She's so well acquainted with the internal life of herself. And she writes about it with such candor and with such honesty. That you read yourself in her words.
0: You know, she's like the original gangster.
1: Yeah, she's the OG. Like, she's been talking... All the stuff that you see today on Instagram posts with little like, Like, you know, if you're a feminist, subscribe and share. How, you know, how to put down a misogynist. All that stuff that you see today in consumable tiny bites across Scoop Shoop and you know the other <laughs> platforms Buzz Scoop um, we're, I we're love all,
0: Buzz Scoop
1: <laughs> this was all already a part of Paromita's films um, you know a part of her columns all this so much before uh, it became a part of the mainstream.
0: Totally true. And I think she has a really interesting lens for looking at these issues and also looking at them through different lenses of diversity and through a lens of great joy.
1: Paro also has this incredible career in television and she has been making feminist content, for the lack of a better word. I hate using the word content. Hmm. But she's been using and making that kind of like those kind of films. Hmm. And in fact, she had this huge show. It was a reality show called Connected Hum Tum. Hmm. And uh, the idea was that it would be six women. Uh, all would be given like handy cams. And then you would have to sort of film your own life um, for six months. And wow. you would have to have some kind of like conflict in your life and uh, for six months you had to film yourself and then they would sort of cut it up together and make like a season I think it was like 40 episodes or something right yeah uh, and she was the director of that wow and um, actually, that was the first time I ever heard of her right and um, and I remember like put, like submitting like I was like they called me and they were like would you be interested in doing this show and I was like oh my god yeah I'd definitely be interested in doing the show and then they were like what's your conflict and I was like ah And it had to be something that I would be able to film and put on TV. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. Like my debilitating banana addiction is something (laughs) I could not talk about (laughs) on national television. You know how our country feels towards bananas.
0: But I also think that um, it takes huge guts to film your life for six months and then broadcast it.
1: Right. But, but, you know, and I didn't realize at that point in time that... It was it was going through the hands of someone like Paramita hmm. because Paramita, um, you know, is this incredibly sort of empathetic, insightful, intelligent person,
0: and um, it was almost and and also, she's very she treats her subjects with like great tenderness, yeah, yeah. and and empathy. That same joy, yeah, you know, that
1: happiness that she has about her, she sort of infuses that in everything she does. And
0: uh, so then what happened? So then did they did did you say like I don't have a conflict? And I, then I they, said I,
1: I, I. Yeah, I said I don't have a conflict. And then I sort of shirked back because it was reality TV, and I was yeah. a little like I, I don't want to do reality TV. Um, I was terrified they would sort of sensationalize it and really cheapen it. Sure. Um, you didn't
0: know. You didn't realize who was at the helm. I did not know who was
1: at the helm of it. Yeah. Um, because if I had known, I, I like things would have probably been different. Um, but it sort of. You know, the fact that she was doing this, and when I I saw the final product, by the way, I saw the final show, it's on YouTube, um, and it's wonderful, you know, she's, that, like, again, the whole cheapening of it with, like, just, you know, sensationalizing sexuality or success or failure, none of that, okay, it was just this really empathetic uh, lens through which she showed us these six women, um, and it was the first time I'd seen reality TV done right. Mm. And ever since then, I have thought to myself, if I had to do reality TV, that, was that would have been it.
0: Yeah. I'm never doing
1: a thing again, but that would have been it.
0: Yeah. And now tell me about, can you also tell uh, tell our audience about Unlimited Girls? Ooh, so Unlimited
1: Girls was a 2002 documentary film that uh, Paramita Vora made. And the film, um, the, the sort of, the the backbone of the film is... These eight women in a... Or eight to ten women in a chat room. And... Um, How do you make a film about a chat room? Right? And they sort of are going back and forth um, you know, with each other about what it means to be feminist. Yeah. And again, this was a time when... Feminist as a word wasn't too out there and popular and whatever it was, was like a bra burning feminist and stuff like that. And it's funny because, you know, like I remember one of the first things that I like the first time I was introduced to feminist thought or feminism Mm. as a theory. I remember being like, oh, the only thing I know is that they burn bras. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, have you bought a bra? (laughs) <laughs> those are not burnable items my friend
0: you yeah, do they... not it's, it costs like 4000 bucks a bra dude also how would you light it on fire <laughs> right Have, think about the logistics of that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah I feel like it wouldn't catch <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like that you're like you know dousing it in gasoline having said that yeah why would any woman burn a 4000 rupee bra to prove a point I would rather <laughs> burn something of yours than mine <laughs> after you are bothering me so much Um, And and she discusses that in the film. She she talks about it. She's like, you know, um, she's like, how many of you here are burning bras right now? And everyone's like, oh, you know, I've heard that they burn bras. But and it was this very naughty, very playful approach into the basics of feminist theory. And again, it was just something that I've never seen before. Today, we're going to be interviewing Paromita Vora. Paromita Vora is a columnist, a documentary filmmaker, and the founder of Agents of Ishq, which is an online multimedia platform that uh, whose tagline is "We give sex a good name." Uh, full disclaimer: uh, I am the hugest Paromita Vora fan in the world I love Paromita Vora more than Parumita Vora loves Paromita Vora is how much I love her so much of your work exists um, in the space outside binaries Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's uh, you know I mean time not being uh, linear or whether it's um, giving yourself these permissions uh, to break out of what people have told you that you are and that role that you act out. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm doing that uncle thing where I ask, where I like, tell you my life story and then I say, <laughs> I was just doing it for comment.
2: <laughs> but, I believe me, as a documentary filmmaker, we've had many
1: such people in audiences who
2: are like, I have a question. Oh, please. But it actually is the Atma like they'll tell you the entire story of their life. <laughs> I have lost the question, sir. <laughs> but doesn't matter, we don't really want to find
1: it. <laughs> uh gee, because you were having these conversations uh much before anybody else was having them. How did you reach that point so early on? Um, uh, compared to the, the world that we were in? And was it was it your peers, was it school? Like, how did you get there? For
2: me, individually it started in that way that
1: I didn't really
2: fit in into anything. And it so happened that because my father had a transferable job, I never had to stay in one place for long enough to get the fitting in beaten into me. Mm. So while it was hard, of course, that every two years or three years you change a school and you're always a strange outsider. And even I was a strange character and you know, like I was fat. And everything was wrong. And uh, so it's hard when you're young. I don't even know that I knew there's a concept of fitting in. I think I was so lucky in that sense. That That's a blessing. Yeah. I mean that time it may have felt very scary and difficult and painful even. But in a sense not knowing it meant that I couldn't try it. First of all, I couldn't have done it. Right? Uh it would be like me trying to have an arranged marriage, right? Like, you know, my parents <laughs> never tried to arrange my marriage But they're like what should we
1: write <laughs> <laughs> I fear for the poor guy that's what my mother tells me she's like Do you think I'll inflict you upon some poor man out there I was like great point actually that might have been a
2: good matrimonial like it's like Amit Khan's school of marketing because like I'm not good enough for this film and then everybody wants to go and see them. <laughs> So who knows we might have had rich husbands by now. But, <laughs> I mean we might have been locked in the dungeon, but that doesn't matter. But I think so I think because you don't fit in you have to kind of make everything up for yourself. Sometimes you have that nice teacher who gives you a book to read or who notices that you're not a typical kid. So, you know, you have these kind of fortunate encounters as you go through the world that help you to not give up.
0: Have you read Roald Dahl's Matilda? I. <laughs> have not. It's a great book. Yeah. But I'm envisioning you as like a young Matilda. What was she like? Uh, oh,
1: Matilda finally ended up with... Yeah, big glasses, giant book, nose yes. it all the time. Yes. She ended up with telekinetic powers. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> she, she ended up with telekinetic powers and... Uh, like
0: very brave, very clever, very encapsulated in her own world.
1: Yeah,
2: That I was definitely like that as a child. Like I didn't have any friends. I had a lot of books. I loved books. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, that continued till I was in college. <clears throat> and in college, I began to finally make some friends. And I do connect that to the fact that in college, I finally became a bit happier with what you can call my... It's not my work life yet, but sure. my intellectual life, or my, that part of me, and I studied literature. I feel I just came into my own. And I remember the exact moment when I felt like that feeling of... You know, sometimes people say, I feel a sense, I, I'm home. And mm-hmm. I, that, I have to say that cliche of letting out a breath of relief, mm-hmm. uh, that I can be, whatever I am is not bad, or not doubtful, dubious, you know, was that we had a Jane Austen novel called uh, Mansfield Park mm-hmm. in our first year. You know, of course, like every other young person, I had read Pride and Prejudice and loved it and whatever. So I'm like, oh, Mansfield Park, and I read it. And Mansfield Park is quite a boring book, okay? And it's a highly moralistic book. Now so we had to write an answer about something, I don't remember the question is, and then I, something took hold of me that that gin Jin enters you sometime, you suddenly say what you really think. Which is like an ill-advised plan in life, if you ask me. But anyway, I wrote like Fanny Price is a really irritating heroine. Because whenever anybody's having fun, she gets a headache.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god.
2: Which is true. Fanny Price is always getting a headache. <laughs> She's always like fainting, and you know, everybody has to take care of her. And yeah. the moment anybody's dancing and flirting and having a good time, Fanny Price starts getting a headache. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the teacher wrote, Bravo. <gasps> And I thought like, oh, wow, I can say what I really think and it can be rewarded, <laughs> at least with recognition of nothing else. So actually that environment where thinking your own thoughts and putting them down in some consistent way, if you could argue it out, it was all right. Yeah. This was like a totally enabling environment to be in. right? Yeah. Something that it is true that if you're not a very typical person, mm. you do need some level, even a little bit of an enabling environment is enough. Maybe the entire context doesn't work for you. But if you have just one or two things, that's enough to help you to go to the next stage and the next stage. And for you to recognize that you're going to have to make a context for yourself because a context
0: where you really flower doesn't exist in the world. You talked about feminism and gender and sexuality before it was part of a mainstream conversation. Mm -hmm. Words like patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And clearly you were a a Matilda character. But what was going through your mind when you started to open up those conversations in your work? What was that process? I
2: would say that when I started working, I worked as an assistant, but I was living in Bombay, so I had to do many other things to make a living. And I ended up working on soap operas and channel V and something and something. So this very eclectic exposure was a really good thing. Mm-hmm. I think a, a very important thing that happened to me was that I lived in tenement housing, So I came out of my class and cast comfort zone in a big way, right? And I cannot recommend that experience enough. Do you, tenement housing as in uh... so it was like slum uh, like a slum redevelopment, housing now would be uh-huh. a PMGP colony. Basically, it was a resettlement colony for people who'd lived in a slum. The slum had been broken down to build a road, the JVLR road. Huh. And then those people had come to live in that. And that's the only place I could really afford. <laughs> and my rent was 700 rupees a month. So it was mm. a real relief. But what it meant is that like nothing, nothing that, there was no comfort zone. They didn't, like this was exactly that, that somebody who collects your garbage or whom you who drives you from the station to your home, whom you don't even remember their face, yeah. are now your neighbors. And in the 12 years that I lived there, I learned. to think, years, yeah. I lived there for twelve years. I made four films over there. I made unlimited girls out of a one-room, like tenement yeah, tenement so room, ridiculous. right? And uh, so, learning to really um, confront your politics in a real way, right? Because mm-hmm. it's all very well to talk about things uh, in an abstract, and you may believe those things, but then it really gets tested on the ground when you have to live that life, right? And uh, you recognize that your privilege accompanies you no matter what, but you can also lose your privilege, mm-hmm. and. There is something very enabling about losing those privileges because it equips you to speak afresh and think like yourself rather than just think like everybody else around you, you know, because now there's no peer group in a way. So by the time that I made Unlimited Girls, I was really good and ready with a lot of these thoughts, you know. And they were not thoughts about just uh, social reality, but they were experiential reality, And just political.
0: Yeah, and how old were you when you made Unlimited Girls? 31. Which actually is a lot of self-awareness hmm. and confidence, you know, I mean, <laughs> <Or stupidity. laughs> no, no, not at all. No, yeah. to be like a devil may care attitude hey, hey, about hey, the hey. patriarchy. Maybe and it's, attitudes.
1: maybe it's yeah. fearless. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so you know that fearless was named after fearless Nadia, right?
2: Because, <laughs> because when you look at fearless Nadia, who is devil may care, yeah. she's not devil may care in the masculine way. So but Nadia is fearless in a very, like, let's have some fun kind of way, right? Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I think that's a great role model to receive, that you're not here to smash the patriarchy. You're here to be yourself. And I think it's a very important distinction, mm-hmm. that I don't want to spend my whole time attacking what I don't agree with. I want to spend my time on earth becoming what I want to be. You know, The patriarchy doesn't necessarily let me do that. But I don't have to all the time be taking it apart to show that, look, you're the one to blame. I'm like, you are the one to blame. So therefore, I'm not going to bother with you too much. Now, if the patriarchy is not a factor in my life, what would I be? Right. And Unlimited Girls is that film that if I don't have to keep on explaining to you, you know, feminism is necessary because patriarchy is doing this. If I'm going to say, okay, feminism is necessary. It's great. I like it. Now what? this is going to be a film about that. Like, what feminism enables you to be rather than what patriarchy disables you from being. Right? Mm-hmm. So I do think, yes, that is a radical thing about the film. It, I wasn't significant, you know? And so I was free to make a film without really thinking about it too much until it was finished. And then I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it should What will happen when we show this film to people? <laughs> like, what, what's going to happen to us? So... It's great. It was a matter of luck, timing, and maybe some qualities of the film that made the film do
1: really well. People loved it. People watched it over and over again. Mm -hmm. And In fact, you know, tying that into the depictions of women uh, as you have seen them uh, from the time that you started making films, how has the representation of the working woman evolved or Mm. devolved uh, in the time that you have seen it?
2: So how many working women do you routinely see
1: in films?
0: Such a good pop quiz question. Yes. And are they just moms that look frazzled? (laughs) I mean, or
2: or are there even moms? Right. Like because the central character is never the mom. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's always like a young woman and a young man. Mm. Yeah. How many of them seem to have jobs? Just happen to have a job. Okay. So when I, I do feel that when things to do with women are in movies, they become a women's only movie. Usually it's like some kind of affliction that women have that they are shown to be battling. But just having women who have jobs be part of movies is quite rare even now. And I feel like the 70s was maybe the heyday of showing women with jobs.
0: Really? Which is so compelling. Unpack that a little yeah. bit for us.
2: A, a girl with a job in an office. You saw Vidya Sinha, Zarina Vahab in Ghar. Of course, these were not like, oh. see the mainstream big Bollywood movie with Amitabh Bachchan at the center, anyway girls were like, props wearing ghagras and dancing you yeah. know the main uh, thing it was yeah. there for the for this uh, male working class figure but women didn't have a very strong role to play but you did see women as teachers yeah hmm. you know in a very routine way yeah the woman in the film had often got a job even though her job was not her concern she was usually it in some romantic in a plot dilemma. point of yeah. the yeah. film but that was part of the character outline of a woman was she had a job Hmm. that that purse Haan, and the work. tight sari getting yeah. into the yeah. bus you know like i have memory of these kinds of figures in movies but now they are a little bit disembodied right like yeah. sometimes they have a job Deepika padukone had a job in
1: Lavajkal. yeah which was but, a, but but they sort of centralized that ki go, oh she chose her career over the man yeah. oh so, so it
2: becomes a crisis point yeah. it becomes a crisis point in the movie should a girl have like Movies where women's issues are discussed are actually referendums on should women work or not? Should women be attacked or not? Right? <sighs> so they don't become about women's
0: lives. This is such a brilliant observation. Well, I
2: don't know. <laughs> <what> <laughs> because it's can true. You, it's can so true. Uh,
0: can you give us a, uh, another example of that?
2: So, I mean, I'm saying uh, if if you look at a film like Lipstick on my Burkha, should women have sexual desires or not? i mean women have sexual desires yeah. they live them out they've been living them out in the movies forever yeah. yeah singing songs dancing falling in love fighting with their families for love etc yeah yes we didn't see sex quasi sex represented in movies that very much but that's true of men also it's not like men were having sex in movies and women yeah. were not right yeah. so this is not an issue only but but women become like they have to wear this robe of a political point which is going to prove that the person who made the film is progressive It doesn't have a lot to do with actually how we will see ourselves rep. That's why I think like Ban Baja Bharat is one of the few Hindi films in which the dilemma of career, love, etc. is not made into a crisis point of should women work or not. Hmm. That's not the discussion. This woman has a certain desire. This man has a certain desire vis-a-vis their work. Hmm. And then they fall in love and it's somehow a complication Hmm. of personalities. Hmm. And how they work it out has bearing on both their attitude to work and their attitude to love. So the way in which the, the, the how we respond to life, different facets of life, depending on the kind of people we are, which is what stories are really about. you know. And I'm saying that even men in films, actually, are usually symbols of masculinity, not just symbols of them, but they get a lot more interiority. They get to have a lot more different trajectories and concerns than women are permitted to have in mainstream films. And even maybe... Sometimes in tele—I mean, television is very domestic and it's a completely different universe and more interesting mm. because it it privileges the domestic universe mm. in a way that films don't privilege the domestic mm. universe. So those things which are dismissed as not being important—what should I make for the guests? Yeah. Or oh, she did this to me. Yeah. See, you. Why should we look down on it? It is actually the stuff of everyday life for many, many women, and you create a hierarchy by saying this is not important. Mm. or you work in television you're not that important See,
1: you have worked a bunch on television and not a lot but a little bit Gee, if, I mean you, you were the you helmed uh, Connected Hamtum which mm. was a show on Sony um, Z uh, sorry on Z and actually I was one of the people in consideration <laughs> for the show I didn't get through uh, what were your observations like in television versus uh, film were they sort of evolving similarly or were they,
2: you know... I think they are very similar in the sense that the attitude to women and how women should be represented is not very distinct in the two spaces, right? So, for example, a woman has to be very bold. Yeah. Or she has to be very conventional, right? Yeah. So you can only be defined yeah. in these... these Binary. Polarity. Yeah. 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 So I think you see that in film as well mm. and you see that in, um, uh, in television as well. So as a m- basic mindset with some variations. Mm. So, for example, you may be more comfortable now in a film saying that women do have sex, but not with many people. Mm, Just with yeah. the boyfriend, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the moment that they have sex with more than one person, it's a crisis point, which becomes the main yeah. focus of the film, right? But in, in, te- in television, you may not show that. So there's a c- kind of degrees of explicitness vis-a-vis sex or ambition, maybe, you know. but uh,
0: Ambition, that's interesting. Yeah. because I, Explain that parallel. So
2: I think, like, see, in television, you have still got not only, I think it's changing, I'm not keeping track a lot, but you do see that it's a primarily domestic space. Mm. Yeah. So ambition is also domestic. Mm. To imagine that there is no domestic ambition is really a wrong thing.
1: Well, like, wait, but, but what is domestic like, ambition? For
2: example, to be the most powerful person in the home,
1: the final decision oh. maker oh, on everything. I'm now an agin.
2: Yes. So the power dynamics of the home also are an ambition. If you are going to get married, do you want to be the boss lady of the house or do you want to be the second in command or do you want to be... I mean, it's also power, right? And people mm. are also ambitious or not ambitious in that way. Yeah. They assert themselves or don't assert themselves. But yes, the location is domestic. Men are actually hardly there. They are like, going to the office or looking stunned. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just looking stunned. You know? <laughs> what blows my mind is that and someone was telling me that actually they are... They, uh, it's a mandate from the channels that uh, the uh, um, the lead actress of the TV show has to be present present for 70% of the screen time. Really? And 30%, then it's
0: assorted people. And well, that's one place there's 70% representation of women. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's crazy that there are all these women who are working around the clock to portray these women that are sitting around at home all the time. Yeah. But the thing is,
2: it's because women are watching, right? The, women yeah. who are, the, the audience yeah. is primarily women. Huh. And what women watch has is also become what families watch on television. So they have driven that to an extent. So you see the caste system that happens is that if you're a television writer, you're looked down on as yeah. compared to if you're a film writer. Mm. Yeah. More people watch television than watch films. So why should you be looked down on? You're bad. But our films good. I don't know how many films are good. Right. Oh, so oh, they are bad in their own way. Occasionally something is good. So this is not. This is only a caste system of what matters and doesn't matter and it's not numerical hmm. in a world which claims to be about numbers.
1: That's crazy. So that
2: is the interesting thing. The world of mainstream, capitalist, television and film claims to be about numbers. But it is bringing something qualitative to bear on deciding what matters more and what matters less. Who gets paid more and who gets paid less, Right. And the fact that television is to an extent feminized, that primary audience is primary audiences, women, and the primary characters are women, also means we look down on it for a reason. Whatever women primarily do, Gets looked down on.
1: जी वैसे know that they keep saying mm. it's chick lit. I'm like, why don't we call these stupid war novels and law novels dick lit? Yes. Actually, that's good. We should call it dick lit
2: because because I mean, very much in the way that we should have really called Mills and Bones clit lit.
1: <laughs> oh, I love clit
0: lit. So I want to I want to talk a bit about sexuality mm. um, and your work through agents of ish hmm. how do the limits and constraints that we have on our own sexuality whether it's as women or folks who identify as lgbtq um how does that constrain what we're able to do in our professional lives and our lives where we're moving around in public space
2: mm-hmm. you know before we talk about sexuality let's take a step back and talk about the body and essentially all the things that, the fact is that it's a labor market labor markets are about bodies. You know, we take our body to another location and we produce some kind of work for which we are paid money. Uh, We like to obscure this fact because we like, I mean, middle class people want to set themselves apart from working people who labor with their bodies. But actually, you also are laboring with your body. Your brain is inside your body. It's not somewhere (laughs) else. So this dichotomy of uh, the intellectual being outside the body, above the body, Mm-hmm. Uh, affects the way that we accommodate varied bodies. No? Because, uh, what is it? It's a kind of sexism. That there are men, they are intellectual. Women are emotional. It's a dichotomy that's been made. Yeah. So the workspace is a rational and intellectual space. And only one type of body inhabits that workspace. That is Whoa. of a straight man. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing that happens is that as you enter the workspace, you already feel you are entering somebody else's space. If you are a woman, you have to assert yourself differently. You have to think all the time about how you will be in the workspace mm. too assertive, not assertive enough, uh, you know friendly with somebody, then oh did you sleep your way to the top? you know uh, didn't sleep your way to the top or oh, you're so stuck up? <laughs> if you don't agree to the really boring and banal jokes that boys think are entertaining, yeah, then you're not a cool girl, right? yeah so there are there are so many ways in which this universe of the office, has been constructed as a masculine and straight male space. And anybody who doesn't conform to that is always an outsider who's trying to break in. Mm. So you're already starting with that dichotomy. At a purely physical level for women, think about the fact that toilets are not available easily to women. There's always been this joke that my friends and I have that so many women must not be working in film from our generation just because of toilets. Mm. Because you went into a studio, the loos were filthy. You couldn't yeah. use them. You didn't drink water. You felt sick. You just found it difficult. You found it inimical yeah. to go into that space. If you asked for something, too much fuss. You can't hack it. Mm. right? So there is a thing that even asking for the most ordinary thing that will make your workspace humanly comfortable, if you're a woman, if you're a queer person, it's excess. Mm. It's surplus. Everything is extra. Because the main thing is only meant to be for men. Mm. Right? So I think air conditioning, made for masculine bodies. So women always going around looking like they have the flu. Like <laughs> yeah. in some very big sweater and, <laughs> and with yeah. a tissue and you're and in and a state of to
1: pee all the time and then they're like, Oh, how many women go to the bathroom? Jaute, hai.
2: Haan, bathroom hai nahi. So you can't <laughs> pee either. <laughs> so it's not only that it's a guy that the workspace is built for, but it's a tall Aryan kind of guy <laughs> who can bear the coat. Yeah, you know? <laughs> A Swedish man. <laughs> a Swedish <basically>. man. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I think for queer people, uh, the things that women have faced, of course, become doubly difficult because uh, you're not even supposed to let on. For the longest time, you just weren't supposed to let on that you're queer. Now at least we speak about it. But imagine the duplicated life, I mean the double life that you led, both at home and at work. So every time that you do well at work, it is by pretending you're not your own self, uh, by mimicking other ways of being, or if you decide to be yourself, if you decide to be brave and say, this is who I am, and I'm going to have a corporate job, and I'm going to be queer, and I'm going to be camp and loud, then you will have to be stigmatized or seen as odd. You will always... The double shift that they talk about for women, there's also an emotional double shift that people do, right? So that's an emotional double shift you do of bearing all that difficulty Mm. while asserting yourself. Never just being able to be yourself and that not being a reason for comment. You have to always be on and always be watchful of how other people are thinking of you. How can you possibly do your best work if that's how things are? How can you possibly get promotions if you don't do your best work. So what happens, you get trapped. So it takes a lot to break out of that. And as always, you owe it to the few people who are different and the even fewer people who accepted their difference. Hmm. That today, more people can be uh, doing, to be being queer and having regular jobs, right?
0: Hmm.
2: I mean, it's not a coincidence that a lot of artists fashion designers, people working in unconventional jobs are queer. Mm, yeah. Because, I mean, I think of myself in that same way because I couldn't possibly fit into the mainstream mm, mm-hmm. without so much suffering. And being Punjabi, suffering is just not in my genes. <laughs> 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 so, I should, so I feel, but people who went away, pe- people who didn't allow their light to be dimmed mm. usually had to go through some kind of time of, they had to plant their own gardens actually. Yeah. you know. So I feel like, That is why you see so much unconventional work was done by queer people because Mm. the mainstream didn't accommodate. Mm. Think how much the mainstream impoverishes itself Yeah,
0: Yeah. when it does not accommodate diversity, right? At the end of every episode, we ask our guests if there's one thing that listeners can do uh, around the issues of women and work, gender and work. It's important
2: that women change the way that... uh, Approval is given in the world. They change the standards for what is considered to be funny, interesting or intelligent. The things we can do are that you have to have to break from wanting the approval of men. Too much in the world is given importance only after men approve of it or white people approve of it or somebody else approves of it. And then you say it's good. Have the confidence to, uh, to say you love certain things, even if the world doesn't, and amplify the work of those women and make them known to be as awesome as they are. I think that every time uh, a younger woman says that, oh, you know what, I, I love this filmmaker or writer, I love her, and I'm going to share her work. That's something women can do for each other as artists, but also in more conventional workspaces. Thank you, Paramita. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Women in Labor is made by Christina McGilvery, Laura Quinn, Aditi Mittal, Manya Sachdeva, Sunakshi Chowdhury, Nandita Gupta, Sonali Thakur, Ipti Patnaik, Rose Higgins, Porva Jassi, Regina Hawkins, Kashish Sethi, and Priyanka Verma. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center, New Delhi. The opinions, findings, and conclusions stated are those of women in labor and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. For more information on the podcast, visit womeninlabor.com or search women in labor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.